Kelly, and you're listening to General Intellect Unit. This time, we're picking up part three of our discussion of the human use of human beings with Jake and Esri from Swampside Chats. If you didn't catch the first two episodes, I'd recommend pausing this one, going back to, and starting from there. As always, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. close the circle on maybe some of what Esri was saying there in chapter 11. Uh, some communication machines and their future. Uh, first half of the chapter is kind of about prosthetics and shit that they were working on, which is cute and cool. Um, there's a lot of stuff of like, you know, it, the potential for cybernetic enhancements to, uh, in, in the like, what we now understand to be the colloquial sense of cybernetics as like cool robot stuff or whatever, or uh, cyber organic stuff, uh, which is actually not what the word means at all. But um, this is what they were working on in the 50s, and they have some cool shit. My, uh, my TRPG Pinterest board uh, is cybernetics. Nice. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Got all, the, all, the, all these great character portraits. Um, <laughs> yeah. Those are one type of like communication learning machine, right? These like cybernetic enhancements or things. And yeah, great potential to enhance humanity. Uh, also, dogs. I, I do want to bring up the, the cyborg dog. Mm. Oh, uh, cyborg dog. Wiener. Wiener said it couldn't be done, mm. but it was. <laughs> Take that, Wiener. Um, <laughs> there's a chapter we skipped over where Wiener basically says, like, you know, humans have language that makes us special and awesome. Uh, and we can impart language to machines by way of programming. And therefore, machines can, you know, participate in language which also makes them special and awesome and uh they can learn by virtue of that right uh because our 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 capacity to learn and our capacity for language are are connected to one another um now he he excludes the possibility of animals uh learning in this way from the consideration and i was like that sounds extremely suspect to me like just absolutely like stuck in 1950 uh, which is fair, you know, he was, uh, so that's, that's not a slight against him, but I was like, I'm going to look into this some more. So I found a video of a speech pathologist who has trained her dog to talk to her by means of a soundboard. Yeah, that's very cute. The, the cyborg dog can in fact use language to communicate. Now, it doesn't use um, abstract pronouns, doesn't use articles, but it can use nouns and verbs together in ways to communicate intention. Um, so, for example, uh, the dog hears something outside and it will like press the outside button and it'll say outside, 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 look, look, come, outside, outside, or like, you know, the dog is whining. The owner asks, well, why are you, you know, what's wrong? And the dog thinks for a moment and then is like mad, mad, mad. It's like, well, why are you mad? Hungry or no, eat, <laughs> eat, eat, eat. Uh, so like, yeah, totally. Like the dog on its own is not going to develop the capacity for language, you know, the wiener is correct in that way, but in the same way that we can enroll machines in language, we can also enroll animals in language. Uh, so, yeah, it's Absolutely pretty interesting. Right. And and 
And the point of it all is the synchronized behavior, right? Like that the, the, the behavior of the two organisms syncs up in such a way that's satisfactory to both of them. That's the point of communication. The point is not like particular structures of language, uh, which, which, so yeah, I mean, Wiener was off, off base on saying this couldn't possibly happen to dogs, or whatever, but it's when it happens, it's, it's like squarely in his, in his, in his, in his, um, in his wheelhouse. Um, yeah, it's just you, you, you just take the, the, the logical conclusions like uh, of the theory as opposed to like the distinctions he had and you can see it all kind of matches up. Um, yeah, this is a, a vision is a visionary and fertile text more than it is like an extraordinarily consistent one for, for sure. When you said when you said cyborg dog, I definitely had the image of a half Ibo, half Rover kind of uh, uh, pretty sweet, you know, like I mean, Bork, Bork, you know, that's you know? just. Well, this is that's just stage two, right? That's stage that's two. Stage two. Um, I, I, w- I will say that this, the state of prosthetics is uh, is really just getting into the stage where nerves can talk to the electric circuits and there can be um, meaningful feedback outside of there just being a computer strapped to you. Um, you know, I, I have uh, one of my best friends, uh, probably my, my best friend, like in, uh, in high school, lost part of his leg and above the knee, which is quite serious and had um, and has a cybernetic leg. But not the kind that ad- that can um, uh, inter interlace or what's the word interface um, nerves and circuits. And there are new prosthetics. Normally, I see them with hands that can actually respond to uh, the nerve impulses. And and you know, with your with your brain, with your mind, you can control the hand in in a more more direct way with your, you know, neural impulses than, you know, than, than my friend who, you know, can do a lot, can, you know, is, is a, works a job, rides a subway, you know, does everything he's got to do. Um, but you know, yeah, can't like, you know, move leg up and down with, with his mind, like in, in the same way. Um, so yeah, yeah, this is, um, it's just like a threshold that we're really just crossing. Mm-hmm. It's it's then it's weird to see that this is like he's he's kind of pretty far ahead of his time with these like side project research stuff um, in this early sort of thing, but that, that prosthetic stuff then is like he's what he's getting to there is that like these these are things that are these are little communication machines that are made out of stacked feedback mechanisms and like stabilizers of stabilizers and stuff, um, but there's another kind that's out there and he he then segues into the automatic chess machine he gets into like chess AI stuff, and he then he calls in um, Claude Shannon who pointed out that, like, well, if you could get a machine that could strategize about chess, like, if you could learn strategies and select strategies about chess, you could select any kind of strategy, really, about any kind of a game. This gets us towards game theory. Um, you know, you get machines that can evaluate any kind of strategy. So, like, these prosthetics were, like, there was, like, tiny little circuits that were evaluating what to do next, given a certain kind of impulse. Oh, the, 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 the finger seems to be out of control. I better fucking stabilize it, right? Like, these kind of, like, selection and micro-slicing of strategies. Chess machines do that, and like even in, in fucking Wiener's day, they were like theorizing this this stuff could be done. Completely fucking correct about it. But what they also theorized, and this the, in in part here, he's responding to a um, a review of his first book, Control and Communication, um, in which this person points out um, and something Wiener was fully aware of and was very much in agreement with the possibility for this kind of like basically artificial intelligence like strategy demon to be able to take over the world and and outperform anything else at, at strategy 
um, the, the possibility for a kind of cybernetic tyrannical world state, um, a, a capital intelligence, if you will, a sort of despotic market consciousness that could uh, dominate and, and outperform everything else. Um, and Wiener is, yeah, like, so there, there's a line of thing that, like, this would make Hobbes's Leviathan look like a pleasant joke. Um, that you would you would be up against something that would be basically impossible to take on because it would always be able to outperform you. Um, nightmarish, and Wiener is like, hmm, yeah, this is a danger, and it, hmm, maybe not yet, but maybe soon. Um, and this is when chess machines sucked. Like yeah. he, he sees it coming, like, though, right? He he didn't even you know he didn't have to see Big Blue beat Gary Kasparov. You know, that's something that you know I when I was growing up that was happening. And I didn't really attach this level of significance to it. It seemed about on cultural par with, I don't know, Jeopardy. I think IBM had a Jeopardy bot, too. Yeah, and it won, by the way, if, if you uh, need trouble sleeping. Um, but yeah, this is um, Neo-China arrives from the future. Uh, <laughs> from the far future. I have, a, I, I have a thought about this, though. It's that... Um you know, for the same reason that Beer says um, the sort of over-concentration of information and command at the top of an organization in its System 5 uh, is a bad way to organize uh, a, a system, it also seems to me that the, the sort of um, fascist leviathan brain uh, that is being proposed here is kind of unworkable and would really be bad at what it's doing. Uh, so, you know, I think that the sort of nightmare platform capitalism we have today is maybe a more like effective and plausible form of this than what is being proposed because I don't like Ashby's law hadn't been invented yet. I, I don't think that the you know this this idea that Wiener's talking about is actually coming from like a review of his cybernetics book by some monk, right? Um, and uh, I, I don't think that that part had really been thought through yet. And if you think about something like Deep Blue or the the Jeopardy bot or the one that won a Go, they're very purpose built machines. Like they use a lot of energy. They're 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 very very good at doing one thing. Um, like far better than a human being, but there's probably like sort of constraints on the variety handling they do that also mean that, you know, they're not going to be like, I think beer basically makes this point in one of the earlier chapters of brain of the firm, right? Is that you're not going to get the computer that is superior at everything in all ways. Absolutely. Yeah. I think because of that, the, um, yeah, I'm in agreement there. I think maybe the, I mean, to kind of riff on Esri's mention of Nick Land there, probably that kind of like nightmare of distributed like liquid intelligence is probably the, the more plausible kind of threat, but even that's not especially intelligent, right? Um, but at, at, at a general level, like I could imagine, I mean, it, I mean, it seems to even be the, the case right now that like, he, like, like kicking back to Marx there, like that everyone, including the capitalists is disciplined by an inhuman power, right? That like, if, if, this, if this is the case, then you could be subject to domination by 
multiple overlapping impersonal uh, control circuits that yes. are beyond your control. Yes. Like truly acephalic control of the uh, of the of the world, right? And it, it would be more terrifying because it wouldn't be a subject at all. Like it wouldn't be a centralized intelligence. It would be a kind of swarm of uh, of micro controls. Well, but we don't we don't have to talk about this in hypotheticals. That's our life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. That's what we live in. That's our world. We don't have Skynet. We don't have the big centralized intelligence that Nick Land jacks off to. It, it's positively like kind of quaint. I think that's the appeal of Land's work to a lot of people. Even like uh, Rocco's uh, Basilisk is that there's a, a quaint nightmare that seems almost kind of uh, romantic because of its like simplicity, whereas. Right now, we have, you know, there's like a, a platform specifically designed to give you borderline personality disorder in small bursts and, <laughs> you know, to encourage you to say the most upsetting things as quickly as possible, right? Like, and it, it can, you know, it conditions you throughout like a decades to become more of like a, a cutting, cruel person, like, <laughs> like to get attention. What was Land's line that like the in, the insane are POWs from the future or something like that? <laughs> like that that this this liquefaction into insanity is is the general dynamic. Um, but yeah, y- yeah, the the schizophrenia of capital, right? Like yeah, the completely misnamed fucking concept. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, I, if you you can't see me, I'm doing air quotes here. But yeah. yeah. I guess maybe sort of related to that, like Wiener is towards the end of the chapter is really riffing on the kind of like gothic imagery that is is actually quite reminiscent of Marx, right? Like this kind of horrific uh, nightmare, blood-soaked vision of a, of a possible future, and he kind of closes out with this like um, call to like the monkey's paw and the genie, right? Like as these two like objects of horror. This is wonderful. Um, so that like so the, the monkey's paw is something that. It fucks you over, but it's not an agent. It does it accidentally. It's just a machine that, like, produces a result that you didn't want. Um, It's dialectical. It has unintended consequences. Yeah. But the genie is an active agent. When it comes out of the bottle, it it might, in fact, intend to fuck you over. Um, And that's actually the scarier one. Um, And so, but there there are game-playing machines of both kinds. Yeah, Twitter Twitter is the second kind of machine. It, it, It intends to destroy you. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's the genie, right? It's, it's not just an unintended consequence. It is intended entirely. Um, there's a great quote at the back of the thing here, then, that I have spoken of machines, not only of machines having brains of brass and thews of iron. When human atoms are knit into an organization in which they are used, not in their full right as responsible human beings, but as cogs and levers and rods, it matters little that their raw material is flesh and blood. What is used as an element in the machine is an element in the machine. Whether we entrust our decision to machines of metal or to those machines of flesh and blood, which are bureaus and vast laboratories and armies and corporations, we shall never receive the right answers to our questions unless we ask the right questions. The monkey's paw of skin and bone is quite as deadly as anything cast out of steel and iron. The genie, which is a unifying figure of speech for a whole corporation, is just as fearsome as if it were a glorified conjuring trick. The hour is very late, and the choice of good and evil knocks at our door. Yeah, fucking exquisite. Um, yeah, lovely stuff. As I said, machines are not just made of iron. They are. They can be made of fucking anything, because machines are structural relations and dynamic structural relations. Yeah, writing this well before uh, Deleuze and Guattari. Oh yeah, totally. 
Um, mm-hmm. I flicked through a lot of their a lot of their books, and they never reference Wiener. Uh, like aside from the the, the well, they, they were referenced like just cybernetics as a concept or whatever, but they don't reference any of this kind of stuff, which is kind of interesting. They're they're French. They're French. They don't need to provide sources. Like I, I joke, but like also that is kind of what the academic standards were at the time they were writing. Is like citations were kind of optional in a way that they're they're not in in uh, Anglo scholarship. So it's kind of hard to know if they were actually influenced by this directly, or maybe yeah, very hard to know. Yeah, it, yeah. I'm not saying they were not used. I'm just saying they were optional. It's like you can mention cybernetics as an offhand thing, and that might be referring to this to this stuff. Yeah. I think I'm with you, though. I mean, that seems pretty clear that there was a, there was probably an influence there. Um, I guess we're on to the final chapter then, the one the one that is missing from all subsequent editions, Voices of Rigidity. Esri, do you want to take us through what this one's about? Yeah, sure. Let me whip out, my, whip out some notes here. Uh, this is the one where he compares directly uh, communist and uh, Catholic ideology <laughs> um, as, you know, being specifically... Um, concentrated forms of this, like, control mechanism. Um, He summarizes the book, you know, that this book has been about two things. It's been about the ideology of progress, and it's been about um, this very dangerous, like, the dangerous problems of the machine age. I'm going to read a small quote. Um, I have said I have had something to say of the very dangerous problems of the new machine age, both from the point of view of the economic upheaval upheaval it is likely to cause. And side note, by the way, he does talk about the how automation may create a surplus population of workers, um, but maybe doesn't follow that thread all the way, all the way through. Um, and then going back to the quote, and from that of the threatening new fascism depending on the uh, machine agovanier. What are we then to do? That's a, a two fourteen. So um, we, in this sentence, being very specifically, it's you know he's talking about um, socially conscious engineers and scientists. He proposes a long and probably unwelcome uh, science education and you know political education informed by uh, that science education, but also like trying to understand the politics behind science. This is kind of what Carl Sagan tried to do, right? Th- this is why I think this book hits me the way it does, is because um, this person understands that scientists, especially at his time, have a sort of, you know, guru potential, and there's their scientists are sort of, especially after the atom bomb, they're objects of worship and resentment, right? Um, there is something great that scientists were uh, pre- you know, able to do in a way is, you know, split the atom and uh, citizens and were very aligned to their national interests. Of course, this is all talking in very American nationalist sort of uh, mindset that, um, you know, individuals were greatly identifying with the state. They, you know, really wanted to win the war. Uh, there was this miracle of science that was created. And then, you know, some sensitive people right in the beginning were like, uh-oh, but... Um, you know, it only took like a matter of days for the general public to kind of realize the sort of devastation that was actually unleashed. And um, in lieu of blaming the government, because apparently, you know, people were a little too closely identified to the government, the scientist becomes a, a resentment fetish figure, essentially, you know, and he's kind of the perfect one. He's alien to normal life. He doesn't bowl with you. You know, he's probably a spy 
Um, and yeah, Wiener is speaking to the sort of mission that like public intellectuals should have. And the only thing that they really can do to sort of avert this future that he's just sort of predicted. Um, he has very interesting things to say about the Soviet experiment here, how there was at first this um, pro-science pretension that it was leaning towards. It had, it had promise. But then the authoritarian system of planning became the enemy of variety. Um, and this is something that he's saying about the Soviet system, but I think the implications, you know, cut across uh, the Cold War, sides of the Cold War. Um, he compares the love of consistency of truth and the, uh, I'm sorry, he compares the love of truth to the love of logical consistency, which uh, no Vulcan would recognize. And he explicitly references the Fichtean form of the Hegelian dialectic. And he has a very interesting imminent critique of sort of the Marxist thinking is that Marxists want to skip to the totality. They want a, that universal understanding. But what intellectual inquiry actually requires is this sort of grappling that, you know, may for now be incommensurate and kind of challenging. And, you know, maybe these things don't seem like they fit together. And he nails down the essential example that, I mean, it really changes the way that science is understood in the 20th century and is perhaps the natural input on why, you know, um, scientists can be gurus less and less is because in physical science, their quantum mechanics undermines a universal sort of causal picture in a way that yeah, general relativity was chipping away at. But I mean, this really, this really, yeah, like we just have different levels of description that work, but can't really be synthesized. We don't have the unified, you know, theory of quantum gravity or whatever, like there's, an, and like, you have to acknowledge that in the dialectical process, you know, that's like the last step. Synthesis is mastery. Um, we need that kind of intellectual questing, that ability to, you know, to, to grasp, to grasp in the dark and, and to try to find, you know, things that work before you demand, you know, their grand synthesis and, and, uh, a sense of universal understanding. Yeah, like, to the extent that we still have public intellectuals, they do gloss over this in a, in a way, or, like, it's just a sort of, I don't know, it's a curiosity to them. Like, there's presenting a unified scientific worldview in the way that the Vienna Circle hoped to do, and the way that, you know, Marxists certainly hope to do. I think probably an influence on the Vienna Circle. Um, it's, uh... It's not. It's 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 not really in our purview. The 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 perspective of the Vienna Circle and the Encyclopedia of Unified Science was actually more um, compatible with our existing situation, uh, and it really was a kind of uh, reaction against the Soviet uh, unificationism. Like it's it's called the Unity of Science movement, but it's. Unity in a very specific sense, which is not unity in the sense of like that kind of like big church Catholic, you know, everything under one umbrella understanding of, of science. 
Uh, it's it's much more like there are areas of of investigation. They probably aren't going to line up 100%, but this is mostly about perpetuating the process of collaboration between different uh, disciplines of science. Uh, that's, that's kind of what Unity of Science was about. Uh, no, that's, that's very fair. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I, I suppose even the, I guess just from far away, even the very qualified Unity of Science being presented by the Vienna Circle is essentially surpassed by the time you get to um, Popper, logical empiricism, the, you know, the second half of the 20th century, and the sort of disaggregation of um, scientific, quote, scientific worldview. They were reacting very much to the same concerns that Wiener articulates here about science, right? Like, it more or less was an attempt to build a socialist answer to the problems of atomization that were perpetuated by capitalism uh, and sort of like reaction uh, in the scientific field. Like they were they were trying to do like a socialist project to, to create the next phase of, of science, which would be more collaborative, which would be both inside and outside the laboratory, which would be public as well as as a, as a specialist led. Um, so very much like on board with what Wiener is, is, is trying to argue here. Uh, it's just, it was um, basically destroyed by the Cold War. The Cold War killed it. So uh, it, it uh, I believe, was like pretty much already dead by the time Wiener wrote this book. Uh, and it kind of only really made a resurgence when Kuhn came up with the theory of uh, paradigms, right? Uh, that was kind of an echo of the unity of science movement. Indeed. Um, so to segue from some nerd shit, uh, Jake, when, <laughs> when, when Wiener compares the Jesuits to the common turn here, where he, he they're, they're, they're both exemplars of this like totalitarian impulse to like subordinate everything in the world to a to a sort of predetermined truth right like the, um, this militant sort of sort of thing how, do, how does how does that, how does that feel like does does this square because uh, I'm, I'm not familiar enough with the bolsheviks and stuff to to really critique this but it does seem i think he, i think he's onto something and i want to i want to hear about the holes in it well i'm not familiar with the jesuits enough to mount uh sufficient critique here's what i'd say i mean i see what he's saying because you know people compared the early you know second international working class movement to the early Christian church. I guess you could say, you know, the similarities come when said project becomes integrated into a state somewhere. In the case of like the early Christian church becomes integrated to the, into uh, Rome. And then this becomes integrated into the USSR and other AES countries. I mean, there's a certain kind of truth to it. Um, from a, yeah, you know, from a certain point of view, I guess. Mm-hmm. There's certainly, um, I mean, he does he does bring that up, right? The the transition from the the Church of the Saints to the Church of the Bishops, and that the bishops had to purge the saints after, you know. That's that's actually like yeah, his explanation is because the yeah the church is lining up with the state, but um, it's something that you get in Leninism and in Bolshevism that you don't get in say the uh, I don't know the Georgian you know democratic republic that existed 
from like 1918 to when the Bolsheviks invaded or something. Like there was like this like middle path that was essentially, and they refused essentially to take sides in the Russian civil war. Um, they, you know, didn't want to join the reds. They didn't want to join the, the whites, but um, essentially, you know, refused to take sides. Anecdotally, from what I understand, uh, Stalin, uh, you know, being in the Bolshevik minority there, uh, led a red army invasion uh, into uh, Georgia that was essentially to the horror of Trotsky and Lenin, but Trotsky especially felt compelled to defend it after it happened. Um, <laughs> yeah. God damn. Yeah, it's like you can really see the ability for a middle option that would have been something, would have been a form of actually existing socialism that I think maybe would have borne fruit being crushed by the polarity of the Cold War. There is a phrase that the, you know, a French communizer, Gilles Duvet, likes to say that the war devours the revolution. Um, that is a dynamic that I think is really visible there. Um, and, you know, here, um, yeah, here he makes the direct comparison uh, between Catholicism and communism down to logic, you know, militant orders of defense. And again, outside of this context, I would describe what is being said here in a sort of adversarial lawyerly use of logic, right? Like the point of argument is defense of the sacred positions. You know, that's, that's the impulse. You know, there's a militant defense. That's the point of argument. And if you ever talk to a Leninist, that's the program. You know, you get, you talk, you bring up this objection, they run the script that they got from the call center. You know what I mean? Like, and um, the comparison goes down to that you have a certain type of logic that has to be upheld at all costs, um, which is Aquinas for the Jesuits, Hegelian logic for the communists. And then it has a, you know, a proponent. Again, you have St. Thomas Aquinas being compared to Marx. And um, again, writing in McCarthyism, he says, you know, we recognize the communist threat, but we don't really recognize the theocratic threat. Um, which, yeah, that could be read as anti-Catholic sentiment. Um, but also, I think, to any humanist that looks at the role of religion in the late, in the second half of the 20th century. There's something prescient about that uh, with the relig religious right. He even brings up birth control by name. Um, and then, yeah. Because, yeah, the, like, the Catholic Church was against birth control before they made common cause with the Protestant uh, evangelical right in America. Like, that, that predates it, so, you know... There's just continuity on the Catholic side, pretty much. Yeah, Americans recognize the communist threat, not the, not the theocratic one. Um, he then goes on to say that McCarthyism is bullshit. Uh, spy games are cop shit. Uh, the, the real crime that the Soviets have with regards to espionage is that they admit it's necessary, or the other states are lying because they also do it. That's, that, that rules. That shit is fucking comical. Because, like, th and this this does, like, tie in with, like, the history of, like, you know, what happens to the workers' movements in the rest of the world, right? That, like, you know, because, like, everybody's doing spy shit, but everyone ha everyone except for the Soviets has the good sense to keep their fucking mouth shut about it and be like, you know, to be like, ah, oh, we don't spy on anyone, but totally do it. Whereas 
The Soviets then say, no, 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 it is the responsibility of every trade unionist, every Marxist in the world to report directly to Moscow. And then that gets them all fucking killed everywhere else and purged and suppressed, which hamstrings their own fucking plan for world revolution. Like this, um, this insane dedication to consistency just fucking kills, kills all that kind of shit just outright because like, oh, look, you, you said, you said the thing out loud. We're going to go fucking act on what you just said. Well, it, it's a doctrinal consistency because when you run, when you do the, the, you know, when you run the governmental machine or the chess machine, if you do the theory of games, like, you're not doing the evolutionary stable strategy, my dude. Like, that's not the best idea. If your goal was to actually export revolution, you would not, you know, do that. You would not say that quite that way. You may have other goals in mind. Ah, but you see, that, that game theoretic thing requires cunning and guile. Which, which these fucking people just didn't have, right? Like, it's, you know? Yeah, and um, it's important to think... It's important that this chapter is called Voices of Rigidity. There's these, you know, there's Catholic, you know, Jesuit rigidity. There's the, you know, communist uh, rigidity. And then there's also American rigidity that comes out of defense of the fifth freedom, which he defines earlier as the freedom to exploit. Um, in an amazing excoriation of American rigidity... The only thing that our propaganda lacks is belief that the Jesuits and the communists actually have, um, but that we actually accept all the Soviet and Jesuit methods that, <laughs> that, and it's sort of prefiguration of the Zizekian, you know, insight into, yeah, you know, nobody really believes in capitalism, but it doesn't fucking matter. The capitalism doesn't run on your belief. It doesn't mind that you're cynical about it. Who cares? Like you're still doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, Indeed. There's a bit, I think, towards the end where he's kind of saying that, like, you know, it's, it's the Americans are borrowing all of the methodologies of these um, to, to, totalizing sort of militant regimes. And like the, you know, the, the Soviet kind of spy machine becomes the FBI, right? It borrows all the methodology, but it's, it's completely just utterly cynical. And he's basically like, if we were going to borrow anything from the Soviets, we should have borrowed the respect for workers' power and stuff. But no, we, we borrowed the horseshit instead. And um, I can now totally see why the FBI came around to his house and were like, you shut your fucking mouth or I'll kill you. <laughs> so fucking funny. <laughs> well, and in some ways, like the like capitalist world's methods kind of preceded like because like the fbi started like before the soviet union was a thing you know and like they're you know jager hoover was worried about anarchists and communists you know pretty early pretty early on um like it, you know it was always like a major i mean like the, the state you know it always played a major port a force in like basically suppressing the working class you know it wasn't to portray that as just like a reaction to this i mean it was a reaction to the soviet union in that it, you know it scared the shit out of them but they'd been doing that before but they're just let's you know let's turn up the gas yeah yeah i guess it's an escalation thing right i mean it's it's kind of what we were on about earlier with these like escalating feedback loops that like these very like the the bourgeois paranoia machine is trying to suppress um the workers movement and then but then the workers movement gains power in one part of the world and then immediately becomes a paranoia machine that does the same kind of accelerated repression sort of thing. And then the original paranoia machine learns from the first one and, and like they, they go around in a circuit of just escalating badness. Um, yeah. I do want to point out also that um, it's not that that gap that he points out where it's like, oh, we have the sort of methods of the Jesuits or the communists in repression, but we don't have the ideals. Like that, that was actually addressed 
with uh, certain forms of like uh, neoconservative theology in uh, mid-century America. Like there was an ideology formulated to try to kind of like justify this stuff. It wasn't purely uh, the kind of like empty Zizekian uh, capitalist ideology that you get in the later 20th century after the Cold War kind of falls apart. Because, uh, yeah, like you had these people who are like basically pre- presenting conservative uh, arguments about the cautious, uh, world weary, uh, interventionist hawk who, you know, has to be dragged into intervening in the world, even though he knows the world is a fallen place and so on. And like all that kind of ideology was formulated after, I think after, uh, or it probably was in the process of being formulated at the time that Wiener wrote this, right? Yeah, no, this is true. I've I've skipped a step because this is basically before, you know, the era of good feelings really sets in and there's a sort of post-war malaise that is more in the intellectual set than in the people that are just home to be glad to be home from the front, you know, but like there, there, there was still a, po- a post-war malaise that kind of gets papered over because of what the 1950s was. Um, I, I think, I think it might be, um, useful or just fun to read, uh, a, a passage from the end, some, some of the last words in the book, if you don't mind on page uh, 229. Um, after he's comparing, you know, communism and religion. This is really him taking aim at the people knocking on his door. Um, We have attempted to synthesize a rigid system to fight fire with fire and to oppose communism by institutions which bear more than a fortuitous resemblance to communistic institutions. In this, we have failed to realize that the element in communism, which essentially deserves our respect, consists in its loyalties and its insistence on the dignity and the rights of the worker. What is bad consists chiefly in the ruthless techniques to which the present phase of the communist revolution has resorted. Our leaders show a disquieting complacency in their acceptance of the ruthlessness and a disquieting unwillingness to refer their acts to any guiding principles. Fundamentally, behind our counter-ruthlessness, there is no adequate basis of real heartfelt assent Let us hope that it is still possible to reverse the tide of movement and to create a future America in which man can live and grow to be a human being in the fullest and richest sense of the word. Yeah, there's a there is a kind of like, uh, you know, a preacher quality to this, like, amen, you know. Um, And, you know, he didn't see the era of good feelings coming. He didn't see the the possibility of uh, achieving this in a more diffuse um, consent based process. Um, he also didn't see sort of like the threat coming from Protestantism, you know, like he points to the Catholics, but he doesn't really see that the first, the liberal Protestants, like the, the mainline Protestants would come up with a, a justification for repression. Uh, and then the evangelicals after, uh, it, it's, uh, Yeah. He would see this, I guess, as an extension of the American threat, the fifth freedom, you know, like. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, but yes, you know, he doesn't he doesn't name Protestantism, you know, and he's perceptive enough and doing ideology critique enough to like in this really strange way. Right. He kind of like reinvents critical theory in, a, in an independent invention sort of way. I don't know if this guy like read Frankfurt School stuff. 
I'm not sure that that was what the intellectuals would have been reading, even if they were sympathetic, you know, especially if they were sympathetic. Not at, not at this time. That would have been, uh, uh, like basically the dialect of enlightenment would have still been, uh, I think unpublished or certainly unpo- not popularized yet. Like he might've met some of the people from Frankfurt school cause he was traveling in the same circles, but, uh, the, the, the work I don't think had been, uh, translated into English yet. Um, uh, but yeah, he, uh, yeah. Cybernetic path to critical theory. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I think there's a, there's a kind of, uh, opening he presents in his argument, right. That, um, well, we have repressive methods, but we have no consistent ideology here. So why don't we take the ideals of the workers' movement, which are legitimate ideals, discard the rep- repressive apparatus, and we have a path forward for a better future? So, yeah, maybe in service of presenting a sort of positive possibility, he's kind of downplaying the uh, dogmas of American thought. Uh, at the time. Well, he has no class analysis. That's always the problem here. Mm. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. he would, it, it's like, yeah, this repressive apparatus again, like people are vested in that. Yes. Yes. Like there's a, like there's a shit ton of money like circulating as a result of that. It's not going anywhere without like some kind of push. So, and when well, you see that too, especially, you know, there's a part where he gets into education and really rails against the, uh, both like the mental manual division of labor and just the general kind of uh, shittiness of the Amer- and daycare center plus basically basic nature of the American school system. And, you know, it's like, yeah, you have to see, dude, how clearly this is obviously all by design. You know what I mean? Like the school system basically produces um, what either weeds out delinquents, sends them to their life of delinquency, uh, and then, you know, prison. Or it produces obedient workers, you know. Like that's like that's by there's a that's by design. It's it's doing that because it's supposed to do that. And so you can see that with a lot of other things that he basically rails against. Um, one thing that kind of annoyed me was this whole like section on art, which was maybe like some of the worst parts yeah. of the book. <laughs> um, oh yeah, I just went. It was just like it really really blazed the trail through that with my finger. I don't I don't really speed read, but sometimes I do. <laughs> Yeah, he's too much of a nerd to get that kind of shit right. Uh, but yeah, the, the class analysis thing is is like, yeah, it's like this guy is coming from the perspective of being this kind of like math intellectual guy with sort of vaguely lib, sort of somewhere between lib and like sort of socialist um, commitments. But he has he seemingly hasn't like actually done much of a kind of class based. Anal- I, I kind of wonder about like a parallel universe in which he like dug into Marx and stuff after after this sort of thing and like turned into a fucking like a Voltron of like intellectual. Um, proficiencies you know yeah because even even just being a math nerd like all right you you know you want respect for the worker you know are if you're concerned with you know the strategic rationality of the workers like uh you're you're on the verge of inventing analytical marxism just you know turn the dial a little more and we can start talking about the you know the conditions under which a nationalist class compromise is is a evolutionary stable strategy and the conditions under which you know, the long shot towards communist revolution is the stable strategy for the workers. Like, he had, like, a lot of the tools to maybe start having that conversation. But yeah, class analysis is is the difference between 
this book and the book that we're reading into it <laughs> yeah, because totally. you know that's that's it's providing grist for this overall conversation of like yeah these things need to be synthesized uh, the proletarian movement needs its own organizations its own like information um it's you know its own its own machines like it's it it needs human machines like in a in the sense of the title of the book, you know, the human use of human beings in this sort of normative sense. Um, well, and as as a sort of student of history, what interested me about this generation is why you didn't get those kinds of outcomes, right? Like why you essentially have this red thread that leads out of the interwar period up into the fifties uh, with lots of sort of like uh, people connected with uh, logical empiricism, uh, science people, all this kind of stuff. And then it's just completely cut off, right? That that's over. Like this is, this is the end of the line, right? 1950 ish. That's the end of the line for this this kind of thinking. It becomes extremely subterranean after this. The only the only places where you see that kind of Marxist uh, thinking continue is in like you know the continental philosophy, humanities, social theory, all that kind of stuff. But like, why does it stop happening in the sciences and so on? Well, it's because of incorpor incorporation and repression, right? Mm -hmm. um, Which is something he gets at a lot here, right? Like the the the, the subjugation of the sciences to to capital, right? Like throughout some of the book, I think this this is the two halves of the thing, right? There's that uh, the stuff you were talking about there, Kyle, of like why didn't this go further? And for me, some of the fascination of this book is that, like, I mean, the the, the GIU project has often been about this like attempt to synthesize um, a prox proper Marxist analysis with like proper systems theory and, and cybernetics and stuff um, because we suspected there was something there to be synthesized and I think we're all pretty much on the same page that there really is. It's fascinating to me how much of that is present right at the very beginning in Norbert Wiener and is, is still unsynthesized. There's just a pile of fucking matches and tinder lying on the floor that is still not lit at that point. And then, as you say, it, it continues to not be lit. And, like, why are we the first fucking jackasses to come along and start really trying to bang these two rocks together? The the Cold War... Like, the Cold War casts a long shadow. Uh, and, I and you know, Esri's right that analytical Marxism did try to do this earlier. Uh, right. It, it, and it's like, again, I can't emphasize enough how much Wiener's position here is unremarkable for science minded intellectuals coming out of the interwar period. Like I, I came into GIU to start this project because I had read about these people <laughs> and this generation. And I said, well, you know, like you look at the unity of science, right? You look at the unity of science project. Transdisciplinarianism, which comes about in the sciences like way down the line, like 50 years later, that is just picking up what the unity of science movement was doing. But there is a huge gap there, which is just basically the influence of the Cold War. So like I do think there is a lot for us to pick up from this period because – yeah, like the more you investigate it, the more you see like 
there was a really fruitful jet, uh, direction of thinking that was happening at this time. And some of it was much more class informed than Wiener's analysis, uh, you know, especially the people who came out of the social democratic movement in Europe. But uh, it was crushed. Um, and so the fact that like, you know, in the last sort of like 30 years, a lot of the kind of like new and fresh thinking that has come up has been sort of like indirect reviving of of uh, tens tendencies of thinking that were crushed in the 50s uh, means there's probably a lot more to find there. There's a lot of dropped threads. There's a lot of shit just lying on the fucking ground. Yeah, when when you if you run the program here, you can't like it's impossible to say that like this has never been attempted or never been tried. What must be happening is that you have these this emergent monkey's paw and or this really feels more like a genie, right? Continually smothering the attempt to combine these two strands of thought, to combine systematic, strategic, you know, decent explanatory thinking and class analysis. There's just, these things are kept apart for very good reasons. And specifically, you know, the communist strand of, of class analysis that understands a sense of long-term rationality. Um, there must be, you know, either monkey's paws or genies selecting against those things. Every time an analytically minded person, you know, tries to deflate the idea of classless society, every time a Marxist makes inroads on formalization and mathematics and, you know, doesn't, just doesn't want to look at that kind of thing, they are playing their part in the swarm to prevent working class victory. And it's hard to overstate the intellectual culture of Marxism. And here I'm especially talking about Western Marxism and, and the stuff that's supposed to be the humanist alternative to Stalinism and Leninist rigidity. Like, this is, you know, it's not like I feel like an enemy combatant here. This is supposed to be my wheelhouse and my, you know, really a very profound disappointment, which is the whole reason anybody finds Leninism attractive at all a hundred years after it flops, like, is that these people are committed to not finding the answer. They would, like, they're almost wholly counterproductive. They send you down purposeful stupidity spirals in, you know, I mean, I even feel this way studying value theory debates sometimes. I'm like, I should get up, you know, like this is a comfortable armchair and everything. But what am I doing? You know, um, yeah, it, it is. There's a profound purposeful stupidity to the emergent system that you can't ignore after a while. And that's when you realize the chess match that you're in. And I mean, just every time you see inroads against this kind of thought emerging from all directions, like a hydra. It's very difficult to maintain the communist horizon and just the most basic concern with strategic formalization. Because we're, we're up against an intelligent machine that can selectively deploy stupidity to its own benefit. Yeah, yeah, deploy the Marxists and the strategic people. Like, I mean, at least the strategic people, you know, most of them are kind of achieving their goals. They're, a lot of their goals have nothing to do with communism, you know? Like, they don't, they don't want that. Like... <laughs> But the Marxists, you know, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. What the fuck? Like, that's like, if there is, like, a place for 
these petty bourgeois kind of like socialist types, you know, uh, people get really riled up about the PMC and that sort of thing and its reactionary role and that sort of thing. Whatever. It's not really a class, but like if this sort of stratum is going to have a utility to a future proletarian, you know, stab at agency, what's that going to be? And what is it not going to look like? Because I can tell you what it's not going to look like because you can point to it. Mm -hmm. It's on the one hand... Um on the one hand, it's edifying to know that we're on the right track here with these kinds of investigations and this kind of synthesis that we're trying to do in general across these podcasts and in the Emancipation Network. On the other hand, it's pretty disappointing to realize how far behind we are and how these these threads have been lying on the fucking floor for so long. I mean, even just like, I mean, calling back to my point about like the, this, the literally the second industrial revolution, the fucking computational revolution and stuff, that a lot of our peers just flat out absolutely fucking ignore and to their absolute peril. And that's deeply, deeply disappointing to realize how far behind we are on a lot of this stuff. Or when you look at the attempts to do cybernetic socialism and they're interspersed with defenses of the purges or something, and you're like, Wee? like, really, you're going to defend the mass shooting of cats and then make like some kind of gesture towards cybernetics? Wait, who, do, who does that, though? Cockshot. Paul Cockshot. I mean, not not in the book, though. Not in the book. He's too smart to do that in the book. Like, I mean, on his Facebook, maybe his, like, crazy-ass Facebook, but... No, no, not just in his weird transphobic blog. He has a really interesting response to Mike McNair's revolutionary strategy, which he is all about defending the purges as democratic, defending the cultural revolution as democratic, like, and it's interspersed with all this, like, really interesting Aristotelian distinctions about democracy versus aristocracy, which I, I haven't read clearer stuff on, you know, the sort of Aristotelian, um, the Arist Aristotelian state theory and communist, uh, communist, like, forms of organization. I haven't read anything clearer about that. And it segues directly into defenses of the purges. And it's like, <laughs> Fucking brain melting stuff. Yeah, like, and that, and that's some of the you know the only like cybernetic socialism out there. So like it, it's um. Yeah, or we've got the fucking neo bacarinists trying to fucking shoehorn beer into their Leninism to save face or some dumb shit like that. Yeah, but but that's an extension of the same tendency. You know that they're they're part of the big church. You know what I mean? The big extinct church. At least you know the Vatican still exists. Like, <laughs> like. You know, American capitalism is, you know, fucking up, but it's still here. Like, it's, it is mind melting. And you have to, you know, again, contextualize even those weird Stalinist attempts or crypto Stalinists or maybe just Leninists, you know, maybe I should just give up the, you know, the word there, like there, there I said it, like, um, like, that's a part of this system. It can't not be. It, it is a voice of rigidity from its from you know day one from the moment that the the phrase was really coined from this the civil war and bolshevization perhaps earlier but i think it's more ambiguous before that before the october revolution before the attempt at the soviet state there is like there is still that councilist dream that was latent in the october revolution and you know i i used to giggle at this there's a, a paper by ticton that you and i read jake um that ends with that the October Revolution still has this epical significance because it's, you know, asking this question of the of an alternative state form and an you know, alternative, like, 
way of organizing things. I, I laughed at it at the time. I thought, yeah, this is just Tikhtin's like extant Trotskyism. But really, no, you do have to contextualize the crisis of the Soviet Union in terms of the crisis of the, of the capitalist world order and the, the inability to square this circle. That there, there is something that the October Revolution asks that, you know, answering would be the riddle of history. Like, it is, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of, kind of gives you a boost of confidence to find the hidden history of all this stuff. Uh, then it's also kind of, you know, it inspires humility, you might say, when you see how, how difficult it is to walk this path. Like, um, like, here's to making it less difficult. Absolutely. Um, so any closing thoughts? Let's see, Jake. What's your what's your take at the end of all this? Um, I don't know. I honestly I'm kind of burned out from recording for like three or four hours. So, <laughs> goddamn. Uh, let's see. Oh, I guess we're, we're we've all been on big fucking recording kicks lately, and it's uh, starting to wear on us. Yeah. Um, Esri, what's what's your? I mean, I guess you've you've had your summarizing <laughs> bit there. It pushes it pushes all my Sagan buttons and and I kind of love it. Um, you know, critiques of imperialism and and uh, colonialism and white supremacy and the gestures at a critique of masculine ideology and then yeah, some inconsistent comments right here and there. But like and then a bunch of fucking old science jammed in the middle. Um, you know, if you're gonna do a communist research cluster style like reader for Marxists on cybernetics. This would be the big text in the beginning, highly, you know, edited to get the best parts in there. This would be like the foundational text. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, Kyle, anything, anything left? I, yeah, I would, I, I think I would just say, uh, we should probably read some of the Unity of Science stuff. Um, that would be good. Uh, I would also say that, uh... I do have, yeah, I think it, it has that sort of historical importance that Ezra's, Ezra's pointing to. Uh, and I also have a somewhat difficult time relating it to our present moment. Um, we're very far removed in history now from this moment. Um, and the sort of, the sort of dilemmas of the scientists that, Wiener presents at the end of the book are, are really not the same as they used to be. Um, the, the fear about scientists as kind of wizards who are doing black magic, uh, that is going to overturn the world, uh, and the sort of awe of them in that regard. Uh, I think, uh, Wiener uses some kind of like anthropological language about like medicine men or something like that, but essentially he's talking about wizards. Um, uh, <laughs> uh he's, uh, he is, uh, you know, like, or that, that has really gone away. Like people are not afraid of scientists in that way anymore. Uh, people are afraid of science mm, in that way. Programmers. <laughs> fucking Silicon Valley dickheads. <laughs> 5G coronavirus towers. Like, we have anti-vaxxers. We've got, you know, like, basically everything in our food, everything in our air, everything in our water. Like, you know, the whole all the foundations of life on Earth are, are viewed with suspicion as contaminated by the hand of science um, by many, many people in the world today. 
Uh, and, you know, we have real, uh, real people who uh, claim to be wizards uh, who are <laughs> who are trying to take their place. Um, but, yeah, that kind of like charismatic power of the scientist doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, and so I, I think it is interesting to think probably, you know, going forward. Uh, what are the dilemmas of science today? Because we did have Neil deGrasse Tyson try to pull this stunt and it really only kind of like, it didn't have the same reach as Sagan's work had, you know, it, it really didn't. It was, it was, it was the kind of first as tragedy, then as first sort of dynamic, right? Um, uh, yeah, not in terms of argument or, or in terms of audience. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that just says that, like, we're in a different moment now. Uh, so these these dilemmas that he's pointing to, like, need to probably be reconceptualized, given the very urgent, uh, troubled relationship of humanity to the scientific endeavor. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like, you know, when, 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 when Trump's, you know, made health advisor is ignored for months on end, and is saying like, well, it doesn't really matter if we have a vaccine because anti-vaxxers are going to just destroy <laughs> the vaccination effort anyway. Uh, it's like, well, OK, there's some pretty serious issues regarding science uh, these days, uh, which, you know, are not those of the Cold War. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you, listeners, for coming along with us on this journey. And thank you to Esri and Jake from Swampside Chats for reading this book with us. Until next time, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. We're on Facebook, we're on all podcast apps, so like, rate, and subscribe. You can find us on the internet at generalintellectunit.net. And you can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash generalintellectunit. If you go there and throw us a couple of bucks a month, you can get access to our community Discord where we have been running a reading group where the community comes together to read Stafford Beer's Brain at the Firm. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows such as Swampside Chats, From Alpha to Omega, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science. They're excellent shows and excellent folks. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this show.